Now I have a strategy when I'm at a buffet. Before I even take a plate, I will walk around and scan and see what's available. I will especially scan the dessert section because I have limited stomach space. I cannot just go and eat the first thing that I see. We have a buffet. We have a feast of God's word before us. We cannot take a bite out of everything. We do not have enough time or uh, brain attentiveness. So I've done the scanning around. I've identified the main foods to feed upon. And of course, it's not all dessert. Some of the points are quite bitter. Uh, but as my grandmother, who's uh, behind, as she used to say, the more bitter the medicine, the better it is for you. So we have uh, good stuff as well as hard stuff today. Let's pray and ask God to help us. <clears throat> Father, we come before you. We are thankful that you speak through your word and we pray that by your spirit, you would revive and speak to every heart. That those who are afflicted, Father, you might bring comfort. That those who are too comfortable, Father, may you afflict them. All to your glory, all by grace. Amen. Uh, you can look at the outline and see that there are three points. And the first asks the question, what if God was one of us? What if God was one of us? Some of you might recognize the Alanis Morissette song. Well, in this opening section, that's one of the main points the writer is trying to get us to consider. What if God was one of us? And it is an important point to make <clears throat> because for many people, their concept, their idea of God is uh, the other famous song from our time. Uh, God is watching us from a distance. That's the concept of God, that God, if He exists, He's, he's out there, he's, he's not engaged, He's not active, He's not interested, He doesn't understand. Offense, the reality is the opposite. God is not just watching from a distance, He's come down. He's come in, He has become one of us. Now the way the writer helps his readers to understand this, is to use a concept that would be very familiar to them, uh, but foreign to us. And that is the concept of a high priest. Now, thankfully, he explains a little in the beginning of chapter 5. So look at chapter 5, verse 1 with me. He says, Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So you see, for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jewish people have had high priests from among the people, and the high priest has had the main function of representing them, mediating between God and them, to offer gifts, to make sacrifices, to atone for sins, for failures, for transgressions. Uh, and all this on behalf of the people. Now, this high priest was human, and he had weaknesses like them. And so, verse 2 and 3 of chapter 5 continues, This high priest is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant 
and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. It's comforting to know, isn't it, that the one representing you knows the struggles you have because he has gone through them himself. It's, it's just like your MP is so comforting to know that he or she is a parent uh, himself or herself, uh, that he or she will understand the insane pressure of the education system, and etc., etc. It's comforting to know that the one representing you is aware of all this. So you see, the high priest is a sinner himself. That's why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the people. So this is the, the concept of the high priest which the readers will be very familiar with. And the point that the writer wants to make is that all of these high priests, all of the high priests that the Jewish people have had for hundreds and hundreds of years, they were just shadow. They were just pointing ahead. They were just the small scale model to prepare us for when the true, ultimate, perfect, great high priest would arrive. And that's what chapter 4, verse 14 tells us. Chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have, we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. So, the true, the, the perfect, the ultimate high priest has come. He is Jesus. And that references his full humanity. He is Jesus, fully human, the Son of God, and also fully divine. Now, because Jesus is fully human, chapter 4 verse 15 goes on to say, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He is able to relate, to sympathize, to empathize with us because he has been through it. Now, some of you might be thinking, big deal. Yes, he's human, he's gone through this, but he's also fully God. And so, the, the temptations would just, you know, fire at him like, nerve bullets and that would it will cause as much damage as, as foam bullets. It, it will not affect him. He doesn't really know what it's like to go through temptation. Because he's God, he's, he's immune in some way to it. But in point of fact, it is actually the opposite. Jesus is the only person who has experienced the full force of temptation. Now, none of us no matter how hard you're struggling now, none of us have ever come close to experiencing the full force of temptation. You know why? Because at some point, we give in. So we, we never actually come to know and experience the full strength of the temptation. But Jesus, who has withstood, endured, persevered against temptation to his very end, overcoming it. He is the one who has known the full force. 
He has experienced every kind. And so he knows. If you are experiencing loneliness and rejection, he's, he's been through that. He knows that if you are experiencing abuse, he's been through that. He has experienced every kind of temptation. And so friends, every other religion, every other religion offers a ladder. And it is a ladder by which they instruct us how we may climb up to God. Only Christianity has God coming down the ladder, becoming one of us, experiencing all that we've gone through, and more importantly, to suffer for us. That is what is referred to uh, in chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. So look with me, verse 8 and 9. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now what does it mean that he learned obedience? It meant that he learned the cost of obeying. It doesn't mean that he wasn't obedient before and through suffering he was disciplined and now he became obedient. No, no. He was always obedient, but in obeying the Father's most difficult command, which is to go and offer his life as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of his people. That is the Father's most difficult uh, command in obeying that. Jesus has come to learn the full cost of obedience, what it means to fully obey the Father. The Son came to fulfill the mission the Father sent him on, to redeem sinful men and women through his death. And the Son obeyed. The Son obeyed. And the mission was accomplished. This is what is meant when the writer says, He has become, He has been made perfect. Not that he wasn't perfect before and through the ordeal he has now become perfect, but rather he has now become the perfect saviour. Because the mission has been accomplished, he is now the perfect and adequate saviour. He is able to save all who come to him because he has died for them. The sins have been atoned for, penalty has been paid. This is why he is the source of eternal salvation for all who come to Him, for all who obey Him. Now, so this uh, first course from the buffet that I've chosen for you, I've picked it in mind for those who might be here and you might not be uh, someone who calls yourself a Christian. Do you see what the writer to the Hebrews is telling us? No other religion offers you such a high priest. No other religion talks about a God who has come down and lived with us in order to save us. No other religion knows of a God who has both wept with us and suffered in our place and knows all it is to go through life in the here and now. Will you consider obeying this God as He calls you to trust Him to, to not clothe yourself with your own robe of righteousness because that will not get you salvation. His work is the only thing that will clothe you with the righteousness 
that will ensure you have an eternal salvation? Will you hear his call to obey by trusting him? <clears throat> That's the first question. What if God was one of us? The second question, what if I maintain status quo? What if I maintain status quo? Let me complete the question. Is that enough? Is that enough if I maintain status quo? I'm not taking steps backward. I'm not sliding back. I'm not spiraling down in my spiritual life. You know, spiritually speaking, I'm at the same point I was two years ago, maybe even five years ago. What if I maintain status quo? Is that enough? Let's allow the writer to the Hebrews to answer. Now, in the rest of our passage, the writer takes a break from talking about the high priestly ministry of Jesus and he takes a break to exhort uh, his, his hearers and he will go from uh, chapter 5, verse 11 all the way to 6, verse 20 before he continues the theme of uh, Jesus as the, as the high priest again. So listen to what he says here in the first part of his exhortation. Chapter 5, verse 11. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So what do you think? Does the writer suggest that simply maintaining status quo is enough? And yet, if we had met under different circumstances, if we had bumped into each other in a coffee shop and we had sat down to talk, you order your drink, I order mine and you know we start catching up. And the conversation turns to spiritual things and we ask each other, it's so how, spiritually speaking, you know, from, from one year ago, you know, compared to one year ago, have you made progress? Have you, have you gone forward? Have you matured compared to one year ago? Now, by the grace of God and to His praise, some of you in that coffee shop would answer, yes, yes. The Lord has been teaching me so much and, and, and I've really grown. I've come to cherish and treasure Christ so much more. But yet there will be others of you who maybe with more probing will admit to, no, I've not grown. And in fact, I, I, I feel as if I've backslided. That, that the first love, I, I don't experience it anymore. I, I, my mind is preoccupied with other things. My, my, my heart has grown cold to Christ. Some of you would admit to sliding back. But is it not the case that most of you, had we met in the coffee shop, would say, no, okay, lah, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, it's been okay. It's the same. Um, I, one year ago, I, it's, it's been the same. I, you know, things are carrying on. 
you know, uh, as usual, praise God, status quo. No, it is not okay. It is not okay, says the writer. He says to his hearers, by this time, by this time you ought to be teachers, you, you should be able to teach one another the word of God. But instead, you're like Ryan, only able to take in milk. You're not ready for solid food yet. Now what was the problem? In verse 11, the writer says, you are slow to learn. In other words, the literal word is, you are lazy. His hearers, his readers have become lazy. That's why throughout this letter, and all the way back in chapter 2, he has exhorted them, pay more careful attention to what you have heard. Don't be lazy. Listen. Hang on. Don't have sluggishness in your ears. Don't be slow to learn. Don't be lazy. And he continues this exhortation in chapter 6, verse 1 to 3. Please read with me. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. Now we don't have time to explore in detail these verses. I think that the things that the author lists here, this list of things here, are the things that Judaism, the Jewish religion, which the his original hearers were tempted to slide back into. Okay? They had come from this and they were tempted to slide back to that. He is referring to these doctrines, these topics that Judaism and Christianity have in common. And his hearers were content to live in the shadow lands of you know, what is the overlap, what is the common things between Judaism and Christianity and not willing to strive ahead to see where all these things pointed forward to. The fulfillment of these things, to grasp hold of realities instead of staying in the shadow land. This was their problem. Now for us, obviously our situation is not the same, but you hear his exhortation. Let us move forward. Let us go deeper. Let us not be content with Sunday school knowledge. Friends, we need to realize why the writer is so focused. Why he's so deliberately urging his hearers forward in maturity. Because as many of you know, in the very next section, chapter 6 verse 4 onwards, in the very next section contains what is perhaps the most severe and frightening warning in the whole of the, of the New Testament. It is a warning against the possibility of falling away. And we must recognize that him in this uh, verse 5, 11 to 6, 3, him, him urging his hearers to move forward is part of his strategy so that his hearers do not fall into that situation where they may be 
falling away. Because if they are moving forward, if they are, if they are taking and making every effort to move ahead in Christ, then, don't you think they are, they are heading in a direction that is opposite to the chance of them falling away? Which brings us to the third question. What if a Christian falls away? What if a Christian falls away? Now you see the quotation marks around the word Christian. Uh, Because one of the questions that we will ask and try and establish in this section is just who is the writer talking about? So I've just put there, you know, Christian in quotation marks. Let's read verse 6. Verse 4 to 6. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. It is impossible for them to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. So what if a Christian falls away? According to Hebrews 6, it is then impossible. It is impossible for him or her to be brought back to repentance. Now be very clear, without repentance, there is no salvation. Right, they asked Peter, what must we do to be saved? And Peter answered, repent. Because it is by the act of repentance and faith that one receives and lays hold of salvation. And so, if it is impossible for one to be brought back to repentance, it means that salvation is forever, forever lost. There is no more opportunity for that person. You know, whoever these people are, will come to that. It is impossible for them to ever have salvation. So you see, the warning is serious. Now, some have tried to lessen the severity of the warning by saying, well, when the writer writes impossible, he's just using... Uh, hyperbole, you know, it's a rhetorical device to scare the people. Impossible doesn't mean impossible, you know. Impossible is nothing, right? Adidas will tell you. In fact, impossible actually just means very difficult. You know, it's, 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 it's very hard, very difficult, but not impossible. Now, let me inform you that the word impossible, the original word that the writer uses, appears four times in the book of Hebrews, and the next occurrence actually is in uh, this chapter, verse 18. So let's see whether impossible can actually mean very difficult. Okay, so uh, chapter 6, verse 18, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Now, let's change it a bit. 
uh, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is very difficult for God to lie. No, it doesn't work, right? Now, in each of the other three occurrences, the word impossible only makes sense if it really means impossible. So, impossible means impossible. So let's uh, ask now, who is the writer talking about? What sort of people is he referring to uh, in these verses? Now, because of the list of things that he says about them, the most obvious candidate is that he's referring to true, genuine Christians. Right? They have been enlightened, they've, they've tasted heavenly gifts, they've, they've shared in the Holy Spirit. I mean, uh, the most obvious thing on faith value is that he's talking about genuine Christians. But there are two problems if that is the group he's referring to. Because if he's talking about genuine Christians, people who have genuinely received salvation, they have genuinely come to have the Holy Spirit dwell in them. And so these people, if they fall away, the writer is saying, somehow salvation can be overturned. The Holy Spirit that was in them can now be plucked out. Okay? They were once in the dominion of darkness, now they are in the kingdom of the sun, and then from the kingdom, they can be plucked out again. So, you know, it, it is very hard to think of salvation that God has so freely given, all these things happening, and then for it to be overturned. That's the first problem. The second problem is that if he is indeed talking about genuine Christians, then there are many, many, many passages in Scripture which are then contradicted. Because very clearly in other parts of the Bible, uh, the New Testament, the Old Testament, it all speaks about the eternal security of the true believer that God will not let any be snatched out of His hands. That Paul says, those that God has predestined he has called. Those that He has called, He has justified. Those that He has justified, He has glorified. It's the same group. God is not like some kindergarten teacher who, you know, after half a day lost one or two students. No. Those that He predestined, they will make it to the end. So, again and again, Scripture tells us about the eternal security of the true believer. And so, if here in Hebrews 6, it's referring to genuine Christians, then... It is at odds with many parts of the Bible. So there is uh, a slight um, twist. So one popular view says that, okay, it is talking about genuine Christians. And the warning here is so severe that genuine Christians, because they are genuine Christians, by the Spirit of God in them, will so arouse them and so cause them to take the warning seriously that they never go near the edge where they might fall off. You know, you imagine a cliff and there's a warning sign. you got some, you know, brats who haven't been brought up properly. They, uh, they, they, they ignore the sign and they just play, play, play and then they, whoop, they fall off. Okay? But the genuine Christian sees the sign. And by the Spirit of God in them, 
it causes them to take the warning sign seriously, and so they don't play near the edge, and so they never fall off. Okay, so it's talking about genuine Christians, but when it comes to this category of people who have once tasted da 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 da, okay, there's, there's actually no one in the category. Do you understand? It's, it's an empty category. No one who is a genuine Christian ever comes, ever has that happen to them. It is an empty category. Now, I must admit that for many years, this was the view that I held on to. Until uh, Don Carson taught me otherwise. Uh, and, and, and Carson said, if you think about it, the view doesn't make sense. Because if you are depending on the severity of the warning to urge genuine believers uh, not to go near the edge, then if you have this interpretation that no genuine believer will uh, go near the edge and fall off, then the warning itself ceases to be severe. The warning itself ceases to be frightening. The only way that the warning would work is if you don't have this interpretation. And then you are actually, it actually causes uh, you to be truly warned. And, so, and that was my experience when I had such, such a view. I'll look at Hebrews 6 and it doesn't scare me. My, 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 you know, my, my, my hair doesn't rise up. The, you know, nothing happens because I know, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm protected from this. You know, that won't ha- this won't happen to me because I am a genuine believer. You understand? So, uh, a better way, I think, is to see that the people the writer is talking about. He is talking about people who look very much like genuine Christians. So, you look at the list again. Is it possible that he's talking about people who, from the outside, look like genuine Christians, but in actual fact are not? They, they've been enlightened. Like they, you, they've come to see, and oh yeah, well this thing is a great thing. They've, they've tasted the heavenly gift, they've come to experience, well oh, this salvation thing is actually quite good, huh? They've shared in the Holy Spirit. Uh, maybe the Holy Spirit has brought them to a point of conviction about sin. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They've come to say, hey, this is, there's wisdom here, there's goodness here, this is like honey. But in actual fact, they are not truly born again. Now that's the other clue. right? The writer doesn't use terms which in the New Testament are used to describe true believers like born again, come to faith, you know. He doesn't use these things to describe these people. And the writer in chapter 3, when he talks about the people of God who witness God's power in saving them out of Egypt, who've tasted uh, something of the, the, the goodness of the word of God, tasted something of salvation because they've been rescued out of Egypt, in the end, they did not make it into the promised land. And in Jesus' parable of the source, at the very beginning, the second, third, and fourth soil, you know, there's growth. They all look the same. But it is only the fourth soil that perseveres to the end and bears good fruit. So the thing is, where do you go to find such people? This, you know, this list of people. Where, where do you go to find such people? 
when I was in Australia finishing my studies, I had a chance to go to Sydney for uh, a pastor's conference and I visited a famous church in Sydney. It was a very happening church. The music was very good. But the lyrics, only vague ideas about God, hardly any gospels. Uh, the service itself was just a whole series of a lot of videos about upcoming events, what's happening in the church. The sermon, the guy didn't attempt to teach from the Word of God at all. It was just human wisdom, making people feel good, self-help. Hundreds of people in that church. whole lot of young people. There will be very little, if at all, falling away from the church. That church will experience little or zero falling away. Do you know why? Do you know why? Nothing to fall away from. But at BTPC and churches like this where the Word of God is proclaimed, where we live in the environment of uh, proclaiming and enjoying the gospel blessings of God. Where here we take God's word seriously, where, where here we, we seek to teach from our young to the very old God's word and, and help them live uh, with the centrality of the gospel. It is here, it is here, it is the person beside you that has the most chance of falling away. The possibility of falling away does not exist in those churches. It exists in churches like this. And so we must ask, what does it mean to fall away? What does it mean? We can define it like this. Falling away is a deliberate, personal, conscious decision to renounce and reject Christ. It is to forsake Him and all that He offers. Okay? It is a conscious uh, renunciation and rejection of Christ. It is to forsake Him, forsake all that He offers. Now notice, falling away is not the same as committing a sin. It is not the same as committing adultery, murder, lying, uh, it is not even the same as being ashamed of Christ at the office. Okay, no, no. Uh, all these sins and failures, if we come before God in repentance and confession, there is guarantee. There is a guarantee of forgiveness. Falling away, it is, it is uh, it's different from simply falling into sin. Okay? But it must be said, uh, if you have a pattern of sin that is uh, unconfessed, unrepented of, you live with a, a high level of compromise. You are uh, getting yourself into a whole lot of danger. You are getting yourself into the situation where falling away might take place. Okay, do you see the difference? Okay, it is not just that committing a one big sin uh, from which we are remorseful and we repent, but that pattern of sin it will just get you closer and closer to the edge where after some time, after so much compromise, after so much bad decision, you come to the place where you deliberately 
reject and renounce Jesus Christ. So that's falling away. Now why is the punishment so severe? Why is it impossible to be brought back to repentance? The writer tells us because to do that would be to crucify the Son of God all over again. It would be to subject Him to public disgrace. For someone who falls away, he or she is actually committing something that in God's eyes is more grievous and more serious than the Roman soldiers who were there originally nailing the nails into the Lord Jesus. You know why? Because when they were doing that, in their minds he was just a criminal that the Roman Empire had condemned. So just a man in weakness, condemned criminal. But for the person who has been enlightened, who has tasted something of the Word of God, tasted of something of what Jesus has, has won and offers to him freely, and he says no to that, he is crucifying the Son of God, subjecting him to public disgrace. He is committing something far worse than what the original Roman soldiers did. Next, we must ask a very important question. At what point does this falling away occur? So that beyond that point, it is impossible to be brought back. Okay, at what point does this decisive falling away occur so that beyond that point it is impossible for the person to be brought back to repentance? So we see maybe a person who has been a regular in our church start coming less regularly and then soon he doesn't come for Bible study at all. Maybe he has found himself a non-Christian girlfriend. He started drifting away. Or we see maybe one of the youth, uh, in his time in the youth ministry, he was active, was a youth leader. Uh, then, okay, goes to army, goes to uni, and starts seeing him less. He starts rebelling, starts giving in to peer pressure. You know, have, have, they, have these people, when, when have they crossed the point where it is no longer possible for them to be brought back? When has falling away decisively occurred? Friends, the answer is, we do not know. We do not know. If you find somewhere in the Bible where it clearly tells us, you know, from the outside looking in, you can tell, you know, concretely, uh, decisively, yes, it has occurred. Show me. But as far as I can see, the Bible doesn't give us enough from the outside looking in to make such a judgment. So you know what that means? It means we don't give up. It means we, we don't stop praying. It means we don't stop yearning. Just because the person has been away and gone for what months, doesn't mean you stop praying for them. Doesn't mean you stop trying to meet up with them and, and urge and challenge them. Come back. Come back. Arrest the drift. Don't drift further. Come back. It means we don't stop. And it means from this pulpit, God enabling us, we will keep proclaiming the gospel. 
Because it is the gospel and the gospel alone that can save people. It is by hearing that people can meet that message with faith. We don't stop, we don't give up, we keep yearning and we keep praying. This is what it means. Last question. Last question. If what I've said uh, is true, that is, you know, so far, then some of you might have the question uh, rising in your heads. What about assurance of salvation? Okay? Right. So, uh, some of us have been taught that once we become Christian, we are given an assurance of salvation. Okay? Now, uh, the author here gives us, gives his readers assurance. And we see that in verse 9 to 12. Please read with me. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. The things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So you see, the writer, because he knows his hearers, he is able to give them collectively, okay, collectively uh, some assurance. He knows, he says, we know we are convinced of better things for you. Okay? Based on what is he convinced? Based on what they have done in the past. How they have, as he says in verse 10, uh, they, have, they have worked the love that they have shown him and how they have helped his people. Okay? So based on what they have done in the past, the writer has some confidence. But notice he is also assured he gives them assurance based on what they are doing at present. At the end of verse 10. And how you continue to help them. So you see, his assurance is based on their track record and on their present fruitfulness. On their present showing the fruit of true faith. Do you understand? So many of us have been taught wrongly that assurance that our assurance, we, we, we go back to the day when I was 18 years old and when I said the sinner's prayer. And then maybe somebody unhelpfully said, okay, if you have said the sinner's prayer, it means you are now saved and nothing can take that away from you. You know, so our assurance is based on this historical event or on me saying the sinner's prayer or me raising my hand at a meeting and coming forward or me being baptized. No, 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 no. The Bible doesn't understand assurance based on past events. The Bible only gives out assurance as we are presently showing and displaying the fruit of saving faith. That's what he says here, right? We want you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized only as they continue pressing forward, holding on to Christ. Ah, then they can have this assurance of hope and seeing this hope being fully realized. 
Friends, heed the warning. The possibility of falling away is a real one. Hold on to Christ. Press on forward in Him. May God help us.